This is First, Last, Best, Worst. The only podcast recorded on a Tascam 4-track cassette tape. We explore the craft of songwriting with our guests as they perform the first, last, best, and worst songs they've ever written. I'm your host, Carl Banks. I'm Taylor Rogers. And I'm Paul Blackwell. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to the podcast, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Taylor, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? I am fucking wonderful. We are in Studio G in Brooklyn, which is this is the first time we've ever recorded here. And it just, I mean, it's so exciting. This is one of the, you know, best studios in town. Yeah, not in Paul's living room anymore. <laughs> so oh my excited God. about that. It's been very hot in that living room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but now we're feeling fine. And uh, today we've got uh, Bodega Ben from the band Bodega. Uh, joining us uh, on this episode of the podcast, and uh, Bodega just released their debut album, uh, Endless, Skull, uh, Endless Scroll, on uh, What's Your Rupture earlier this year, so uh, excited to have these guys, excited to have Ben from this band on. So pumped. How you doing, Ben? Great. Can we hear uh, your first song? Yeah. Cool. Eight, seven, two, three... Grad, walking down the aisle, cards swipe, stacking up his pile. He spends all his family's money reading tomes on the fall of Rome. Cultural consumer, culture, it's consumed. Cultural consumer, yeah. Artifact consumer, refine coffee table book style. Barnes, no member, bibliophile. Cue how many Patty Smith memories. Well, they have to publish every quarter to please the cultural consumer. Culture, it's consumed Cultural consumer, yeah Artifact consumer 10,000 plays and books you must read Before you die No love life, he never gets out much She's running out of Cultural consumer Culture, it's consumed Cultural consumer, yeah Artifact consumer Hell yeah, little uh, little vibrato at the end there <laughs> to put a cap on things. Yeah. Uh, what's the, do you have a title for that one? Cultural consumer? Cultural Consumer Part 1. Oh, Part 1? Is yeah. there a Part 2? or do you there's, just put... there's five parts. Oh, like wow. Ongoing saga. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so when did you write that one? So uh, I'm a little being, I'm being slightly disingenuous. It wasn't my totally first song. That would have been something I wrote, you know, in 2001 or something. But I was a drummer first mm. um, from age, I think, like 12 to 22. And I went, went and I played in a lot of bands in that time, and I always wrote the lyrics, and kind of did the arrangements for almost all the bands I was in. But I was never the lead singer; I was the drummer, and always kind of like wanted to be the singer. But mm-hmm. um, and then I had some bands when I first moved to New York that were it was it was right around the Black Dice Animal Collective time when yeah. every band was playing into loop stations and hooting and hollering and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a bunch of songs like that. Those are the first ones I wrote. Um, but, um, when I wrote that song, which I think was 2011 or 2012, that was the first song I wrote that I feel like I've found my voice as Bodega Ben. Cause I, um, that was in this band that I had called Big Fur, but then I started this band called Bodega Bay in 2013. And that became like one of our staple tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that band broke up now, uh, there's this band Bodega 
partially because I started to coin myself as Bodega Ben as a, as a, as my the moniker for my songwriting voice. Which so, I, so that predated the band just Bodega. It did, but that song was like a little avatar for a direction forward. It had a lot of the qualities that I felt like were uniquely something that I wanted that, so that, that Ben could explore. You know? That was the first time you synthesized the various strains of into a cohesive yeah thing for for this kind of current thing that you're on. Yeah, it felt like um, it had all the elements that I like in songs that I want to write, which are, it has like, uh, it feels like a little essay in a way. Yeah. But it also has a, a sense of humor, but there's also, it, it feels punk, but it has a lot of melody in it. I don't know, it just felt like this is, this is exactly like how I want to write songs. Yeah. yeah, it feels to me like a little Lou Reed-y or something, where it's kind of like sung but kind of spoken to and mm-hmm. all that. I love it. I always think um, it always fucks me up when the lead singer of a band is a uh, drummer because I spend the first half of the set trying to figure out who's singing the song. And I'm like, who the fuck is singing? And then it's like, oh, it's the drummer. And then it always blows my mind. And that just happened to me like two nights ago. I'm like, who the fuck? Is this like a backing track or something? (laughs) It was the drummer. I just couldn't see because he has all that gear around him. Yeah. Yeah. When did you start playing guitar? Well, I mean, I've been strumming along since I was like 10 or something, but uh-huh. but learning new metal covers and things like in Green Day covers and stuff like that. Actually, the first band I ever played in was a Green Day and Ramones cover band in the 6th grade, I think. Oh, really? Um, and, and you playing drums at that time? No, I was playing guitar? guitar actually. But then when I started um when I first joined my band where we did all originals, which I think was the ninth grade, then I moved to drums because there was two guys who played guitar who were a lot better than me. They could mm-hmm. they could play like Jimmy Page stuff and whatever. So I assumed, oh wow, guitar is not for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I I remember actually the about a week after I graduated from undergrad, I decided, wow, I should really uh, take rock seriously. So I my grandmother had given me like eight hundred dollars or something, um, a big chunk of change for a graduation present. So I went and bought a Strat. And then that whole week, I learned a bunch of songs and started. That was that was maybe like the ground zero for me trying to be like a serious songwriter, maybe. Mm-hmm. And cool. then as far as the drums, is that did you take lessons on that, or is that just something you picked up? Uh, well, I did uh, like marching band stuff in the in middle school, mm-hmm. and then yeah, I took lessons briefly for like six months, maybe you know to do your paradiddles and stuff like that. Right. But I just I spent hours playing along to records, a lot of. Um, a lot of stuff teenagers would. Like, I learned all the first four Metallica albums. <laughs> I learned, you know, a lot of the Led Zeppelin stuff, Pink mm-hmm. Floyd. Yeah, Led Zeppelin is how yeah. I learned how to play guitar pretty yeah. much exclusively. Just from there. You can play t- all that stuff? Well, I used to know how to play all of it, or yeah. at least all, like, the good riffs. Yeah. <laughs> I would just, like, learn the good riffs and then play them until my mom told me that I couldn't play them yeah. anymore. Could you do the solos? Uh, I could do some of the solos, yeah. Wow, um, I'm impressed. Yeah, but I couldn't play a whole song the entire way through, though. Yeah. So I would just like learn like the tasty little bits, yeah. and then um, just practice those ad nauseum. You know, a thing I've gotten obsessed with uh, the Jimmy Page thing, where he hits a note and then instead of bending it, he'll change his tuning peg mm-hmm. with his left hand. Yeah. I don't know. There, I saw a little YouTube video of him doing that, and I was like, "Wow, that is the that is it." Just it, graphically, when you see someone extend their arm and go, right. it's super. Yeah, know, it's, yeah, it's incredible. And yeah. to get it back to like the right tuning for the next part. Yeah, I'm not coordinated enough for that. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to my hands on the fretboard. I yeah. think it's tough because <laughs> a lot of those a lot of those tunes too. They're like a lot of those tunes. They're tuned to themselves, you know. And so when mm. you're like trying to learn the song. You can't really learn it because you're like they're playing like an E to an A or something, but their guitars aren't you know specifically in 440 tuning, so oh, yeah. um, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so what have, what are, what would you say are some of like your your most formative uh, kind of influences that still kind of like loom large in your you know consciousness and unconsciousness as a songwriter? The biggest one that led me into the Bodega Band voicing that I have now is Marky Smith from The Fall. Um. I just was realizing that you can almost do anything in a song and repeat phrases a lot and you, you can you can talk in a song is is exactly as if you're just having a conversation. That's true. Yeah, he did really not sing mm-hmm. uh very much and he didn't really rhyme a whole lot a lot of times either. He did yeah. kind of uh he did kind of j- yeah, 
he did just kind of like rant, you know, mm-hmm. in like kind of a there, rhythmic way. There's a way. real internal rhyme scheme to it. Yeah. You know? um, You're right, though. Yeah. But not the classic kind of like, you know, the classic pop couplet, you know, where mm-hmm. it rhymes at the end of the phrases, you know. I mean, it's a ryth- it's a rhythmic, but it is more of a uh, – has more to do with like the natural conversation of uh-huh. someone talking to you, so – to me, it's closer to like to rap, I guess, because he he was a pop genius. You know, yeah. certain phrases he sticks out. That's exactly how pop music functions, especially today. It doesn't really have much to do with melody. It's all rhythmic, and you know. So I guess he was a huge one for me. I also, at the time, was really obsessed with the Minutemen. Just the the idea that most most of my songs are under ninety seconds. And yeah, I think the better ones are like on the forty five second mark, because I. One thing that they do really well, and I guess a lot of, a lot of people do this, but um, their songs have this like haiku like quality where there's they say something and it I guess I guess the biggest quality that I like in songs is where it feels like you're getting a glimpse into someone's consciousness in real time. Like you're walking down the street and you just a thought pops into your head and then you as soon as you you could write down that thought in a notebook and as soon as you get that thought out, that's it. You don't you don't need to. You don't try to gussy it up with right. poetry or language. Yeah, You're just like a raw cut of yeah. human cognition. Yeah, um, that's cool, man. Uh, so, uh, so that was kind of the the synthesis of sort of your bodega mm-hmm. path. Yeah. That song, and then you uh, you formed this band, uh, Bodega Band, which mm-hmm. and later Bodega, mm-hmm. which uh, brings us up to now, 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to play us uh, maybe the latest song that you've been working on or that you've, sure. you've cut? Yeah. Um, this is the newest one that I have all the lyrics finished for, and it's, it's much more in that folly kind of vein. It's called Knife on the Platter. Like an actress after the stage. Full of contempt, contemplative, exhausted and betrayed She is always rehearsing If you reveal no secret, she said I have no use for you History will laugh at your lazy hip smug fatalism Knife on the platter Knife, 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 knife on the platter She said tonight the draw doesn't matter Mind over matter Knife, 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 knife She reveals the truths in cliché Gets her marked by the candelabra Like a sentence pressed to a page She's unwilling to compromise Time dances on the stage Acting out history If you reveal no secrets, she said I have no use for you History will laugh at your lazy hip smug fatalism. Knife on the platter. Knife, 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 knife on the platter. She said tonight the draw doesn't matter. Mind over matter. Knife, 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 knife. She reveals the truth in cliche. Hits her mark by the candelabra. Pretension. Pretension Amazing <laughs> There's Obviously when the group plays it It's much more sophisticated But that's just the bass and the, the vocal you know? Well let's, let's talk about that How, does, how do you um, Let's talk about the process of taking a song From the seat of your idea to the band um, Are you writing on guitar When you're writing lyrics Or is it, are those separate things There are different methods I uh-huh. have maybe like three or four go-to Tried and true methods uh-huh. I'm pretty old school 90% of the time it's just acoustic guitar um, You know I, I, I love the um, You know I was talking about Marky Smith and Minutemen But also you know Maybe my biggest songwriting hero Is somebody a lot more classical, like John Lennon or something. Um, in older bands, I wrote much, much simpler, just singer-songwriter, very melodic kind of stuff. Um, so n- a lot of the process for Bodega will be I'll write something on acoustic guitar, and it'll be kind of just simple, open major chords, um, maybe like 80% of the time, because I'm just searching for something really hooky. Uh-huh. And then I'll bring it to the band, 
and then um, we'll transpose it into something a little bit more in the vocabulary of our band, which means we'll immediately take away those chords and we'll try to find an interesting groove for it. And I don't know if people know this, but one of, one of the things about Bodega right now is that we're trying to be as minimal as possible. We don't even have a full drum set. It's just floor tom and snare. No cymbals are allowed, except sometimes Nikki plays an auxiliary hi-hat. And then, um, you know, most of the songs are musically centered around the bass when we actually play them live. And then I play, I guess what you would call rhythm guitar, but I try to play kind of a combination of just uh, kind of, I guess, Velvet Underground-y style drone chords or single string things, like little pointillist things or harmonics or something like that. And then Madison, he plays, I guess, more traditional rock and roll lead guitar, but, but not in like a pentatonic, you know, stock way. He has a, he has a very unique way of voicing things. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 but, you know, I guess our goal is, is to have the sum of, of everyone doing something really simple create something that could not sound like uh, what it could sound like with just one person. Even though I, all the songs start out with, in this very classical thing, you know, I like to play singer-songwriter shows because I think the songs sound very different when you just play them with the open chords and just sing them in right. a slightly more um, obvious way. And know? are you the predominant songwriter in Bodega? Yeah, I write most of the songs. Nikki, the, uh, there's two songs on our album that she sang lead on, and she just wrote those. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other methods that we have too, like um, this knife on the platter one was just kind of Heather playing the bass, and then I sat next to her and was kind of just freestyling, and we recorded that, and then you know, I, then I, I like to put a lot of care into the lyrics, so there's there's hours and hours of crafting later, but you know, it starts out as just kind of a spontaneous thing. We do a lot of jamming is not the right word because it's not like. Um, like yeah, it's not like, like I mean it is a little bit. Like we definitely are I mean I personally do like the kind of jam world, but um it's more like trance type stuff where we'll literally pick one chord and we'll just kind of like play it for like 45 minutes and the vocals are totally freestyling. Mm-hmm. Uh that's a big part of our live show and also maybe the way I write songs too. It's more about like trying to capture a feeling in that, you know, classic Chuck Berry rock and roll way. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, do you have a, a band practice space that you guys are always mm-hmm. at? Yeah, we recently got a new one because we've been touring for the last like eight or nine months. So oh, okay. we didn't have one because we've just been playing playing our album out. But now that we're writing again, we're, you know. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so I did notice that uh, there was one interview where you talked about you had uh, 12 commandments for... <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh-oh. Uh, so I... Uh, so... And, and that is, like, a kind of a way, I guess, like a guideline to help you stay minimalist mm-hmm. um, and kind of have – if there's rules that you can't do, it kind of forces you to find other ways to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've always felt like having just hard restrictions being, like, very freeing in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's, like, a, a way to, you know – because I think that everyone has kind of habits that they go back to as a musician and, you know, songwriter or, I mean, every element of life. Uh, that, and it's good to recognize when you have those habits and ticks and when it's time to break them and stuff like that. Um, uh, and I think, like, having those kind of – I thought that it was really cool to see you have those li- that list of rules written out as – it seemed to me like a self-conscious way of trying to break um, uh, with kind of, like, uh, stylistic like tropes that might be a, a standard rock band. Yeah, like yeah. put you in a rut. You know the things that are the default things that are very easy to do. What's really funny is we actually broke almost every one of those rules. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the first rule was we're not going to do garage rock stuff because we we thought you know we don't want to be we don't want to sound like standard rock and roll. We want to try to update the rock and roll vocabulary. But actually, most of our some of our best stuff is just stock rock and roll stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where did so, the commandments come from? Who was it? Something crafted by you, or just the whole group? When uh, actually, when me and Nikki sat down the first band practice, it was just me and Nikki in the beginning, and we uh, we wrote a sort of this big chart out. We we did a column of everything from because she was also uh, in Bodega Bay, so we did we did a column of everything about that band that we liked that we were doing, mm-hmm. and then. We wrote a column about everything that we didn't like and that we would like to do differently. And then so out of that, we, you know, I I like to say that there's nothing organic about this band. It's not like we got together with friends and are just jamming. Um, 
you know, it may come across like that. Even Bodega Bay wasn't like that. It, it was it was always um, more of a conceptual project. I so guess. you're making a conscious aesthetic choices ahead mm-hmm. of time before Absolutely, going yeah. into it. Yeah, I mean, th- there's something very, um, you know, if you see us live, it's very um, spontaneous and just. Uh, but 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 the, there's a good R quote. You can't. You can't improvise on improvisation. You got to have a script before you can improvise. Mm-hmm. I find that true in. I also do films too. I find that true when you're working with actors. You can't just say, "All right, say whatever you want." <laughs> you're just going to get the dullest stuff because they're not. They're not going to be free. They're going to be inhibited. But if you say, "Okay, in this scene, you found out that this girl's been sleeping with your friend," but you can say whatever you want. Those people know they've been in that situation before, and they're going to know exactly how to make that real. It's the same with the song. So if you say, okay, in, you know, in, in this section of the show, you can do whatever you want. But if, if we've got this rule, it's very freeing to, you know, to know what to do, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the bands that get uh, the most out there are also in, in, in some ways the tightest because you have to get, you have to be tight and disciplined to, like, really push far afield and, and mm-hmm. uh, really explore, like, kind of the, the, the most outer regions of music or whatever. Uh, uh, I mean, this is a little facetious, but I think every great band was a conceptual band, you know? If you really think about what any great band was doing, it's really precise. It's really... Yeah, they had a, they had a, a thing, an aesthetic, like a, a specific thing that they were going for, mm-hmm. and they did it. I think that's an interesting theory that, uh, that all great bands are, to some degree, premeditated. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a perfect segue for getting into what you think is your best song. And uh, could you play that for us and maybe set it up a little bit? Yeah, sure. So this one is a more traditional song. This is just kind of a, the best song that works with just one guitar and voice kind of thing. Uh, it's just a ballad that um, is on our album called Charlie. But I'm really fond of the song. It's, um, it's uh, just outside of my range, which is also why I think it's good because it forces – it brings out like a yearning kind of quality, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm hoping that I can play it well this early in the morning, but <laughs> all right. I heard footsteps and you were right there in my room. We met through the song and we lived through the tune. Lately I've been trying to live outside of the dream But I never really knew what that was supposed to mean Remember when we had an invisible band You played invisible bass guitar, clutch invisible mic stand You said we'd always float high, we'd always be free But we never really knew what that was supposed to mean I was standing on the lawn on that New Year's Eve Your body washed up from the river, you were covered in leaves In my life I would play on repeat In the lot next to the park that you were buried beneath Got back home from the lion's den I was fucked up on paint fumes I was fit, I was spent On that Staten Island ferry I was with you, my friend I see your face in the river I am with you, my friend And the last time that I saw you Was an empty room You showed up halfway through the set Then you left with the tune Now lately I've been trying to live outside of the dream But I never really knew what that was supposed to mean Yeah, I never really knew what that was supposed to mean Yeah, I never really knew what that was supposed to mean That was great. That one definitely would lend itself to him. Acoustic guitar, 
you yeah. know, with those major chords. But it's yeah. a great, great tune. Uh, living Outside the Dream. Have you ever figured out what it means? Um, I have my own interpretation. Yeah. I think it just means... Um, for me, it means the... Po- the I, um, let me phrase this right. For me, it means the possibility that change is possible, that I could walk outside the studio now and do something breaking, breaking my habits to surprise myself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is hard to do, and I think you know, that's kind of the, the point of life, really. Right. We're all yeah. creatures of comfort, and, mm-hmm. and yeah. especially like musicians, you, you want to be out there, but then it's like you get stuck in these like, things where you're like working within the thing that you're good at or comfortable with, and it's, yeah. it's hard to get out of it. A lot of times you don't even really realize until someone points it out that like, oh, you keep doing this, or you mm-hmm. keep doing that, um, you know. Or you listen back with the the benefit of, of hindsight, you know, and be like, oh, wow, like, I was, was really doing that a whole bunch mm-hmm. at that point. Um, I mean, it's the classic existentialist thing. Yeah. I mean, that song's about my friend Charlie, who I was friends with when I went to the University of, of South Carolina, and he drowned in the Charleston River. So I guess I had been trying to write a song about him, for him, in, in homage to him, I guess, and... I'd wrote a lot of them that were really bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, and finally, I stumbled upon that one, and it, you know, it really felt good. And it's, 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 a, it's kind of a sad song, but it's meant to be uh, life-affirming. You know? and that, that's, that's the, people rag on nostalgia a lot, but the one wonderful thing about nostalgia is you remember what actually matters to you. Yeah. You're much emotionally more intelligent as a child than you are as an adult. I agree with that. Sort of, yeah. to a certain extent. Right. I mean... <laughs> I mean, you're you're much better at uh, identifying your own emotions, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, I feel like, uh, but that that song, you know, it's about it's about loss, but you know, it's not a uh, it, it's not a dreary song at all. You know, it's mm-hmm. a it's a very sweet, uh, very simple, very poppy, catchy song. It's, it, it definitely have a, has a vel- melancholy vibe to it. You know, mm-hmm. with the uh, um, you know, with the melody, but. Um, I really yeah. like saccharine kind of melodies. I think yeah. I either tend to be like completely atonal or super sugary. <laughs> yeah. I, I like extremes, I guess. But. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, like the, having this, the, the sweetness and kind of like the atonal, atonality and, and things like that uh, often help cut each other, you know, mm-hmm. the same way, you know, sugar and salt complement each other, you know, in cooking and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, when did you write that song? Um, it was it was March 2016. I remember it pretty well. Well, actually, what's funny is about six months before that. Do you know the band Sunflower Bean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're kind of like a, a, a local band that's done very well. Yeah, but, they're blowing up. Yeah, um, it would be kind of disingenuous to say I'm friends with them, but I know them, mm-hmm. and you know I've seen them around and uh, have friends of friends and that kind of thing, and. Um, so for whatever reason, their name was in my head, not for any reason, but for a while it was, I heard that you crawled out a sunflower bean. And I just had that little melody, and I was like, well, that's really dumb. Yeah. I don't really <laughs> want to write a song about that band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have anything to say about them, really, um, good or bad. And then, um, uh, But then I showed up to pract- practice earlier for Bodega Bay. It was like a month before we broke up. And everyone was late, so I had an hour there to kill. And I had been reading poetry all day, which I think helped me because I was in this poetic state of mind. And I drank a bottle of wine, Killing Time. Um, and then I just started playing that song. But then I, I was thinking of Charlie, and then boom, like almost, you know, it all came out. Obviously, I edited the words later I had, um, you know, to make the, uh, the, the thematics a little bit more concise and formal or whatever. But I pretty much wrote that whole song in like 20 minutes waiting for everyone to show up. So did you play it for the band when they got there? I did. I played them. I was like, you, and, you know, and, the, and you know, we all kind of jammed on it because it's simple. That's exciting. It was really good. Yeah. And everyone was like, wow, that's actually really good. You know? Yeah. It's, it's weird how just those little uh, bits of like the little dumb ideas that you have throughout, like you never know when they might come back around and be a real uh, important part of something that you're creating yeah. or form the basis of something else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why it's always, I, I always write down like every little, you know, Thing like that. I just think that, you know, keeping track of even just the dumbest ideas, um, you know, like a stupid little melody about sunflower, 
being mm-hmm. you know you never you never know when that when that seed is going to sprout. Um, yeah, well, it, it, it suggested the melody, which leads me to another big t- uh, you know songwriting idea of mine is is I think most of my best stuff, not all of it, but a lot of it happens when I do the words first. So I do a lot of um, writing just in a notebook without any idea of music whatsoever. And then if you just pick up a guitar or or um, a bass and then you look at those words, they kind of suggest a melody that's going to be way more interesting than any melody you would just have, especially if they're kind of strange words. I like to pack a lot of syllables into a tight space just because it has like a, I guess I'm always looking for this yearning kind of quality in music where like, you know, you're striving for something better. And I feel like so music has to be kind of energetic, caffeinated or something. Yeah, and that's a Chuck Berry thing too. Yeah, uh, he's my favorite. Every beat. Yeah, yes. yeah, he's so good. <laughs> he's cool. You know, some yeah. questionable uh, life choices and things that he, I don't know, there's this place in St. Louis, uh, his, his place, uh, Blueberry Hill, where he would make people change their uniforms there and he like filmed them and that was, that's a little weird, but they yeah, built a statue. Wait, what? Wait, tell me this. He had a place, he has, or used to have a place in St. Louis called uh, Blueberry Hill and downstairs is the duck room and he would make the uh, employees change their uniforms there and then it turns out he had cameras in, uh, in all the place. He had some real shady stuff. This is like... Oh, no, yeah, Chuck, the, yeah, no. Oh, no, no, he was, a, he was a real creep. Real pervert. He was a real, real, real awful, awful man. Yeah. Uh, but don't take inspiration from that part of his life. <laughs> but, <I> mean, <laughs> if, if, if you the, don't want to be inspired by um, immoral artists, you, got, you don't have many to choose from. Right. Yeah, yeah, no. It's, it's, <laughs> and there's some questionable things about Johnny Johnson was his uh, piano player. Yeah. He's Johnny Be Good. And... Uh, he was, uh, he maybe stole some stuff from him and kind of took all the accolades for a lot of the stuff that was actually, but yeah, you know, mm. nevertheless, rock and roll hero and, and on the Mount Rushmore of, of rock stars. Um, but yeah, you do use a lot of, uh, I, I always think it's, uh, interesting when people use vocabulary that's not typically used in, in songwriting, you know, there's mm-hmm. kind of like a standard sort of, um, you know, the kind of typical words that that get used in songwriting and then there's you know the other words that i think it's really interesting when people make a way to make them sound musical you know the more mm-hmm. more specific words um rather than kind of like the general sort of more poetic words that uh what are some of those cliche poetic words you think i think mountain mm. mountain yeah i got one talking about the sea Avenue, avenue is used. Avenue, because you have that long U sound. And it just, yeah, it sounds great. Avenue. Yeah. I wrote yeah. a song with Avenue recently. Maybe I'll have to change that. I, no, I have it in like five of my songs. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I should, it's like shit. Dylan did it, so I get to. I think I could do it. Yeah. Breathing, talking about breathing a lot. Um, I just feel like there's there's mm. kind of like a, a common vocabulary that uh, that is used in 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 a lot of songcraft that it's uh, just stock. Yeah, just stock, yeah. just stock songwriting, Im- imagery, vocabulary. Um, so it is cool to hear people trying to use other words outside of that. And I think you do a really good job of uh, putting very specific words mm-hmm. and making them sound musical. Yeah, I, I, I like the quality in songs. I like in a lot of my favorite songwriters. And what I try to do is to, it's almost like the guy singing the song or woman singing the song is right there on your shoulder like talking to you in your ear and it's like it's like a little too close <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? and, it, and it, there's no mediation i mean there's a lot of great songs that are much more abstract um and you know much more lofty up oh, statues up on a pedestal i think that a lot of times though using very uh lofty uh generalist uh lyrics can kind of make it seem can make songs seem more for- forgettable, you know? Because mm-hmm. if you're talking about, like, the sky or eyes or something like that, that's not very specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it doesn't really it doesn't really set a scene. It doesn't really hook me in. Um, so I always pick up on, you know... It just depends what less, your goals are. Yeah. You know, there's, there's the... I always say there's the... the there's another film reference. I'm such a movie guy, but there's, there's like, the Stanley Kubrick model where you want to make something that is so perfect that it do, it feels almost inhuman and then there's the there's the other model like the Cassavetes model or something that feels yeah really handmade and, yeah i could or, do that or even better yeah. the the Godard model where it really feels like someone is right there making the movie up as it goes along which to me is way more exciting than the Kubrick model 
Right. Well, we Personal. are reading uh, that Village Voice article that, about Bodega, and that's where we heard about the 12 uh, commandments or whatever. Oh, right. Yeah. It also said that you were the quintessential Bushwick band. And I just want to ask yeah. you, how does that well, – okay, that's, I guess that kind of answers my question. How does it make you feel, and does, does that mean anything? Well, I mean, it's very flattering. It's cool. I mean, we definitely wanted the record to um, – to be very concrete and specific in that hip hop way, which I think, which um, Stephen wrote the article, um, kind of goes into with the lyrics, like we're you know that we're mentioning Bogart Street and mm-hmm. Palisades Venue and stuff like that. So yeah, it's very cool. Um, I don't, I mean, Bushwick is a very, uh, you know, it's a transient place. It, it first was polo grounds for rich people who lived in mm-hmm. New York City. And obviously, its story completely changed. I think maybe the the quintessential Bushwick album would have to be, I don't know, I don't know what, um, maybe like the Ghetto Boys or something. Aren't they from Bushwick? Yeah, yeah. Bushwick. Yeah. I feel like I mean, if they're born and raised, they might have more cred. But right. The thing about Harry Nielsen was from Bushwick too. I knew, yeah. I actually heard you guys say that in one of your other episodes. Yeah. I think it was the Shil Perret one. But, um, <laughs> Damn it. I, we know one fact about Bushwick. Yeah. We just keep repeating it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, people have come at, come at us being like, how dare you call yourselves Bodega? Mm. You're not even from New York. Um, which to me is odd because it's like Lou Reed wasn't even from New York. Right. Yeah, yeah. And Not many people are from New York. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't get that nationalist kind of mentality of um, – you know, you've got to be from a certain place. To me, to me, I was from New York before I ever came here because I dreamed about coming here. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's yeah. like an E.B. White thing. He talks yeah. about that. Like, you yeah. know, the, the dreamers, they're the ones that make New York what it is, you know, because the people that are from here, they, they're kind of oblivious to the glory of it because they that's all they know. Yeah. I guess, I guess one thing we're, we're trying to do is tell stories from the, the DIY rock scene. I think mm-hmm. we do that fairly well. Bodega Bay did that, and Bodega does it to a certain extent. Yeah, you reference like Silent Barn and, and other yeah. like you know DIY venues. It's almost like uh, you know trying to be like the the wallpaper for this time to mm-hmm. you know. I, I, it's just fun to to sort of. Uh, I mean, it's it's in no way the definitive document of it. it's just my my version of it. Yeah, well, I mean, a, a part of you know making art is taking something very specific like a time and place and trying to figure out a way to draw out universal themes about. You know, mm-hmm. life and stuff like that. Um, I do think I, I feel like uh, rock and roll in New York does tend towards a and has historically always kind of veered towards uh, kind of a specific sound, like kind of a, a tighter, um, grittier, noisier, shorter form of rock and roll, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to rock and roll that that kind of developed elsewhere in the country, um, just because of how New York is set up, you know, it's a, everyone's tightly packed in, uh, to these spaces. It's, it's gritty. There's a lot of concrete. It's, you know, distracting. It's noisy. Mm -hmm. Um, it's fast. Yeah, it's fast. It's it's a grimy city. And I think that, uh, pretty much all the bands that are reflective that come up from New York are kind of reflect that energy. Mm -hmm. Um, from the seventies, you know, with like, uh, you know, New York dolls and, and yeah. the Ramones all the way up to, you know, the present. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you guys have that kind of like that dark New York kind of uh, that that kind of gritty vibe, you yeah. know, like concrete. Well, it's, it, have you read um, David Byrne's book where he talks yeah. about uh, he talks about CBGBs and he, he has this theory that I love that the architecture of the place where music is performed in determines the form of the music. So yeah. like the stock example is like Gregorian chant, that, that genre of music came from this, the big reverb-drenched kind of cathedral spaces where uh-huh. it was performed yeah. in. That's actually uh, the book that inspired that thought that I just had. <laughs> oh, great. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, um, so. I, yeah, I, I like writing songs for utilitarian purposes. Like if I'm going to play Alphaville next Tuesday – and this is actually how I write songs. I want a new song for the set, and if it'll probably be in like the fourth or fifth slot, what function can it have, and how can I get my ideas across to a bunch of drunk people that couldn't, you know, are just there to hang out or whatever? And 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 I, and so that tends to be like, you know, there's no symbols, so you don't want to suck up any of the frequencies, and you want the rhythms to to sit there in a way where the vocals can really cut through, and you can really just like talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's really cool. That's yeah, a really got, cool framework to work from. Yeah, you do have a lot of like very punchy kind of call and response, you know, where the lyrics are very clear on the beat. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Uh, well, let's move on to the worst song that you've ever awesome. written. Yeah. <laughs> it's always our favorite part. The best part. Cool. Um, I had a fun time relearning the song, which um, I'll explain why I think it's the, the my worst song later. But it's called Yuppie Take a Cab. <laughs> it's a very New York song. Right. Pre-Uber, though. You know, <laughs> it, it wouldn't make sense now. Hey, Yuppie, next time it might be best to take a cab. A Wall Street woman just steps on the four train. Grits her teeth at Bowling Green Man. Will you please not breathe or stand close to me, miss? Where would you prefer that I stand? Hey, yeah, pee. Next time it might be best to take a cab. Hey, yeah, pee. I think you've got the bread to take a cab. Yeah, pee. She is settling down She's eating from a bag of crumbs She's got the Beatles on her smartphone She's really getting turned on Oh, everyone on train is also looking at smartphones Or looking at smartphones on the ads Wall Street woman pulls out a second smartphone She's taking pics of all smartphone ads Hey, yeah, Pete Next time it might be best to take a cab Hey, yeah, Pete I think you've got the bet to take a cab Now she's driving a cycle She's really racking up points But then she bumped into Bowling Green Man again Miss you spilling all of your crumbs No, take a cab Take a cab Take a cab Take a cab Hey, yeah, Pete Next time it might be best to take a cab Wait, I want to come in for a second yeah, I gotta say I love that song. <laughs> That's awesome. But also, I wanted to talk. I wanted to at least ask you about or mention the fact that nobody, most rock bands today don't use. Uh, they don't. They won't reference like a cell phone or the oh, internet yeah. or computers. And that's something I noticed you doing, yeah. and I appreciate it because I've struggled with that. It's part of the reason that rock is feels like it's a little out of date a lot of the time now. Yeah. Like a lot of garage bands using the same tropes, like like we were saying. Mm-hmm. But we haven't figured out a way to talk about it yet. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate it when people do in rock music. Thank you. Yeah. It's um you see that in films all the time too. It's like, you know, these people will do this murder mystery story, but no one is on a cell phone. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. That would be the yeah. first thing you do. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, and what part? What made rock and roll so revolutionary back in the 60s is that it was talking about the things that were happening around the fresh new things that were happening in society around mm-hmm. that time. I mean, even Chuck Berry talking about, like, riding around in an automobile. Mm-hmm. That was, like, a new thing, but no one's talking about, no one's talking about apps that much. <laughs> riding around in the Uber. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, why do you think this is your worst? Because I think it's witty and, and quite good. Two reasons. One is I think it's a little mean. Mm. It's unfair because this is based on a true incident I had where there was this yuppie lady in uh, – I used to work at this film school in in the financial district. So she was clearly a Wall Street person and she was being really rude and not very self-aware. And so I literally am just kind of like making fun of her I guess. But I don't really know anything about her. Mm-hmm. Maybe she was having a terrible day or something. I feel like the best art kind of can see things from a more empathetic perspective. Also, it's, it's – um, it's a big thing that I was doing for a while, which I like, but it's kind of rock music about rock music. So obviously, musically, it's kind of a riff on um, Drive My Car, that Paul song on Rubber Soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's almost, it's like what Ween does or something, where you write a song like in a genre parody style, 
Um, obviously, it's not a parody. It's an original thing, but... It's like half parody, half homage, yeah, kind of. Yeah, It's also just obvious. Like, anyone could hear that song and be like, okay, I got it. I feel like the best songs are... They're, they're very clear, but they, they, you want to go back and listen because there's something a little bit mysterious about them. Yeah, um, yeah. It, I, I, yeah, it's fun to play, though. I liked relearning it, and I was like, oh, this is cool. You know? <laughs> was it on any records or anything? Yeah, it was on the one Bodega Bay album. We, the one record we did was um, a double album called Our Brand Could Be Your Life, <laughs> which is you know, out there if anyone wants to listen to it. That's yeah. cool. That was a good book. Our band could be your life. Yeah, it's it yeah. Great. I, yeah, that that book actually changed my life in a lot of ways. So yeah, the, um, the theme of that album is how sort of DIY is not sacred, and that many of the awful consumer capitalist mentalities that exist out in the world, I think, exist even in sacred spaces like DIY. And I and I wanted to talk about that in a fun kind of silly way. Um, so it's meant to be not a critique of that book, but obviously by picking such a holy cow, it's, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, sh- it shouldn't be. I mean, that was the, kind of the entire point of that that culture to begin with mm-hmm. was not to be set up as like a replacement holy cow for, you know, mm-hmm. what, it was, what, what it was against. Right. Um, That's the reason I don't listen to Fugazi too much, you know. It's so self-righteous that, they're kind of missing the point in a lot of ways, I feel like. Yeah. You know, like, this is the way things are. Yeah. And, and a lot of their songs are, you know, in hindsight, are a little backwards, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think the best uh, social commentary in any genre c- cuts it with, with humor, mm-hmm. you know, and like and a sense of absurdity, just so it doesn't have that uh, stridency, yeah. um, which can be kind of obnoxious. Yeah. The, the, the bodega mantra that I always say is the best critique is self-critique. That's like kind of what we're trying to go for in our songs. It's, it's, it'd be way too easy to point fingers at all the, the boogeymen running the policies for the corporations and the governments that are ruining the world in a, in a lot of ways. But it's much more difficult and much more productive to say, how am I complicit in this? And, and you know, what, what can I do differently? And to kind of figure out the programming that is happening that, that is, is uh, allowing my brain to function in a certain way. Because we're all, we're all programmed, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Ideology. Mm-hmm. It's like all in there. And mm-hmm. it's like this is like a Zizek thought, but like you're you're operating in ideology when exactly when you think you're not, you know, like what you're saying, Fugazi, it's like it's like when you when you think you're above it, that's actually when you're probably in it the most. Yeah. And and rock and roll certainly has has its own ideology and, and I mean they, they walk the talk. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that's Fu- true. I mean Fugazi's great, but I, right. I'm just saying it, from a personal taste, you know, um I'm not sure they, they hold up as well as some of the other bands from that era because uh, there's – it's like – I don't know. It, it's kind of what we were, we were talking about before the tape rolled about how you're, you're a new vegan and, and how people give crap to vegans um, for being self-righteous or whatever. You know, I, th- I think it's the same mentality that goes into that. You know, it's like it's – not, it's not fun to listen to someone tell you they're, they're, they're better than you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But it goes back to just your self critique. You know, it's what it's like. How am I complicit in this thing, um, this ill that I see in the world? And and if I can do something to change it, yeah. Why would you not? I mean, it is. It is. It. It's pretty easy to point your finger at some guy in you know, on Wall Street and be like, "This is fucked up." You know. I mean, it's necessary, but it's also very. It's a lot harder to like look inward and you know. It takes it takes more bravery and self awareness to see how you like you said you're you're complicit in that. So I think it's I think it's cool how you know a lot of your your music explores that. Um, Most you know. bands are run just like how corporations are run. Yeah, you're, it's they're, a small they're, business. They're, it, well, not only that, I don't think there's anything wrong with a band being a business um, because you've you've got to make it to the next show and get gas yeah. or whatever. But but just in, in terms of being self self interested, everyone is self interested. Um, the cover of, of our record is a, is a picture of an ATM that Nikki made. It's a sculpture of an ATM. And for some reason, I've been obsessed with ATMs as kind of like an iconography. This is a really troubling thought, but once I had it, I couldn't shake it out of my head, which is that every social interaction you have with people is like an ATM interaction. You're exchanging data or capital. And I actually don't think this is true. 
in the long run because if you really think about it, like, um, it's, it's friendships and it's about, you know, just having positive um, hangs with people that really make life worth living at the end of the day. But I think because we live in such a capitalist society, everyone, you know, we're conditioned to think of everybody like an ATM, whether you know it or not. I mean, that's literally what social media is there for, is to build up your own personal stock in the world through, uh, through aggregating um, other people to benefit you. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. It's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge bummer. Yeah, I don't know. I read, uh, I read a pretty good tweet that, like, the millennial health insurance is now just having, like, 100,000 followers on Twitter. <laughs> so that oh, when you brutal. do get sick, you can start a GoFundMe page. And get, like, <laughs> that's so yeah, dark. It's yeah. pretty dark, also uh, fairly true. <laughs> um, ben, this has been so much yeah, fun, Yeah, we've man. had a lot of fun having you here, man. Can we get some plugs from you? Uh, where can people find your music? Yeah, speaking of ATM type interactions, yeah. <laughs> yeah. use uh, us like an ATM right now. Yeah, sure. Get that um, info out there. We'll go to your local record store and Endless Scroll will be there. Or you can look on all the all the crap that's online like Spotify and Apple and all that. Or you can look on Bandcamp and get it from us. Or you can look on YouTube, which is the world's radio station now. And you guys are constantly playing, constantly touring and stuff? Yeah, we're going to... France in like a week or two maybe and then our next New York show if this episode will be up by then is December 20th at Rough Trade and then we're going on tour for like two months in Europe in February March but we'll be doing a lot of stuff in New York I think we're playing like three shows in January that I'm not sure of the dates yet but awesome well thanks a lot Vin we really appreciate you coming by yeah this has been so much fun and great conversation do you guys want to do a yeah we can uh, we have time if you want to play a, a wild card song to oh kinda... sure so you don't have to end on your worst um, since uh, people are probably eager to click to another thing I'll play the shortest song I have <laughs> it's called Realism Miranda comes home steps on veranda TXT from best friend Montana but that's not her cellular no that is her lovers ask how does my love have Montana sell she's running to Kinko's making hard copies of nude in mirror of hard on veranda she's tearing up photos to tear up his body like pins in food to a part of the whole she's tearing Photos, shot telephoto, left his profile, deep fall on side of the road. That was like 30 seconds. That was great. <laughs> Told you.